This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Gary Player, the golf great, won nine major tournaments and is just one of a handful of golfers to complete the career Grand Slam. My life is so full. When I met up with Player at his business headquarters in South Carolina, he was the first of golf's big three to join me for an interview, which helped in getting my eventual chats with the other two members, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, in the following years. During our 2014 sit-down, Player reflected on those legendary rivalries. When I played against Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, I said, man, I'm going to beat you. Remembered a lonely childhood growing up in South Africa. To what extent were you alone? Man, I, I mean, you know, I really felt sorry for myself in a way. It was tough. And explained his views on the racist apartheid movement that separated a nation and his influence on its eventual demise. You were a believer of the apartheid system of government then and, you know, the separation uh, of races. We were brainwashed. Plus, he gave us a peek into his intense approach to life. I'd sit in front of the mirror and I'd go, cha, cha, cha. I'd slap myself in the face till I was red and say, you've got to learn to suffer. But we began discussing the topic that earned player the nickname Mr. Fitness. What's your uh, diet entail now? 70% vegetarian. Uh, I'll go a month without a piece of meat. I try and uh, I'm not a martyr. I took an oath to God that I would never have another ice cream or a piece of bacon in my life. I was an ice creamaholic and I loved bacon. And I realized my body told me it was not good. I was starting to put on weight, cholesterol was raising, rising a little bit, and I felt a bit nauseous. So I said, well, how can I stop? I took the oath. Now, I'm finding out that I uh, mustn't have too much coffee. So I was having coffee, and I never had coffee until I was 70. And then you allowed yourself, what, like a cup a day? So I started having a cup a day, and sometimes two cups a day, and I was getting pains in my hands, and I was having quite a bit of bread. So now I've cut out coffee, and I've cut out bread. A bread is only my third day. My hands are feeling like night and day. Night and day, the improvement. You said you've, it's your third day cutting yes. out bread? and coffee for just on three weeks. Okay. And like you, would you and want day. that to last for... Well, now, I've now got to program myself. This morning, I had one tiny piece of bread, and I had half a cup of coffee. Uh, but that's my next project, to cut out coffee, have green tea and herbal tea, and cut out um, uh, the bread. I'll have a piece of bread now and again. I don't think you must be a martyr. You see, Graham, the, mo the most cherished thing you have in life is a healthy body. You can't do anything without health. It's a holy temple. But we're not being educated, but that's typical of America right now. America, over 55% of the population are obese. 22% plus minus are obese in the young people. They're taking sports out of schools instead of increasing it. So the cholesterol is just rapidly increasing enormously. So it's, a, it's the biggest, I think it's the biggest single problem facing the world today, obesity. People will say wars, they'll all have their opinion. That's only my opinion. Because more people are going to die of obesity-related diseases than all the war was put together. How do you think you change it? You've got to change it with education. You've got to change it with the youth. Winston Churchill so aptly said, the youth of a nation are the trustees of posterity. We've got to get it through to the young people. How do you do it in America? If you go to your universities, I would take a guess and say, probably I stand for correction plus minus 40% of the students are either on alcohol, they're either taking weed, or which is gradually being told that it's good for you, uh, or they're smoking. You uh, now very famously posed nude on uh, ESPN, the magazine's body issue. Why do that? Well, when my son approached me uh, that CNN wanted to do this, I said, no, not for me. I said, uh, this is not Playboy or one of these <laughs> magazines. I said, no, thank you. He said, no, they do it very discreetly. Here's a chance. You're going to have to pick up this heavy ball. I want you to stand up there like Charles Atlas and hold that so people can see you have zero body fat, that you have a stomach that's like a piece of iron. I want you to stand up so, so you're people... you a broken rib. I want, you to, I, I want you to stand up and show the youth that you don't just talk about it, that you practice it and that you appreciate it. 
And so he said, here's the opportunity to do it. And I promise you they will do it discreetly. I went in the room, they gave me a gown. There were not people in the room, just the producer and the photographer, of which you stand to the side. All you see is a little bit of the side here, which today is Mickey Mouse compared to what you see on TV with boobs out and half the buttocks sticking out. It was nothing like that. And so I did it, and it was the best thing I ever did. We had so many tweets and SMSs and messages. My goodness me, if you could look. I had a wonderful example. I'm on my ranch in South Africa, and I get a call from some guy out in the boondocks. Uh, he says, Gary, you, you're going to change my life for me. He says, I tell you, I, I cannot believe that I'm half your age, and my body fat is terrible, my children are fat, and... I saw what you did, that, and I looked at you at the age of nearly 80 to see what you look like. I'm changing my life, and I phoned him, and he really couldn't believe I was phoning him from South Africa. And I said, I'm so happy that you tell me it's going to change your life. I've won 18 major championships and 165 tournaments. I'm the only man in the world that's won the Grand Slam on the regular tour with five, five of us, and I'm the only man that's won the Grand Slam on the senior tour. Why? Because I stayed fit. But that doesn't mean anything compared to a man telling you that you're saving his life. What do you do to stay in shape now? Well, I mean, I work out for an hour and a half. I do 1,300 crunches, of which I put a 100-pound weight here for some of them, and then I hold a ball, and I do all different kinds. Mm -hmm. And then I put my feet under a bench and come up with a normal um, uh, sit-up. I do all kinds of things, and then I do I squat with 250 pounds, and I do my bum dumbbells, and I do I exercise from my head right down to my toes. And, you know, here I am, and I play on a normal golf course. I average 70. Sometimes I shoot 66. I beat my age hollow. Every time I have a bad day, a bad, bad, bad day, and I beat my age by four shots, usually. But now, if I played in a tournament, it might be a little different. <laughs> but um, it's exciting, and I work, I'm a workaholic. I believe if you want to stay young... You've got to be a workaholic. Now, you know, you've got to know how to be a holidayaholic as well. You've got to know how to have the balance. But you've got to keep the body moving. The biggest danger to mankind is this thing I'm sitting on. What you should be doing this interview, this is how you should be doing the interview. See, we should be sitting like this. <laughs> and then we'll test a young man like you who's fit to you or me if we sat like this and did the interview. I'm sure you can kick my ass. In it. <laughs> so the chair... And the couch are the destroyers of mankind. Yeah. And the knife and fork. Yeah, I read that you used to, you know, in kind of practicing patience, uh, would be on the highway and drive <laughs> behind the slowest car or yes. truck. Yeah. Is, is that true? No, that's true. And there was a golf pro in California, uh, Mac O'Grady. Very unusual man. He used to do the same thing. I'd get behind a slow car and uh, or the lady on the highway, and I'd be forced to sit there. And, uh, and then I, you know, also I, I sat in front of mirrors in that Tai Chi position, like that, see? Now that, you, you try and sit like that, you try and sit like that for four minutes, or try and do it for one minute. And I'd sit in front of the mirror and I'd go, cha, cha, cha. I'd slap myself in the face till I was red and say, you've got to learn to suffer because that's what life is going to do to you, and you've got to survive. How much of golf, success, one's success in golf, is mental? A large, a large amount. In golf, mental and good nerves. Good nerves are imperative. You've got to have good nerves, you've got to be fit, you've got to eat properly. That's the new, that's going to be the new technique, that's going to be the new um, technology in sports will be eating, because no, very few eating. I, I might meet one person out of 10,000 that eat properly. So that's going to be the new thing, to fuel the engine, to give it the energy, to give you the intelligence, to make your mind work well, is very important. So I come back <clears throat> to the mind. <clears throat> when I played against Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, who were stronger than me and in their home country, when I teed up, I said, man, I'm going to beat you. And it was in my mind that I believe that. And if you don't believe in your mind, you ain't going to do it, because nobody's going to give you that. 
So you've got to develop the mind. You can't only go to the gym and develop your body. You've got to do exercises and reading and thought processes to strengthen the mind. Yeah, I, w I want to take you back to when you were growing up. You mentioned your mother earlier. She obviously passed away when you were eight uh, from cancer. How do you think that impacted you early on? Well, it was, uh, it was devastating, to say the least, because I adored my mother. And um, I have such wonderful memories of her hugging me and teaching me so many things. And she gave me all the love and she said, stand up when a lady comes in the room, take your hat off when you go inside, don't wear your hat inside. And, you know, and get a good education. I can vividly remember all the holding my hand, walking with me and taking me to tea in a little beautiful restaurant in Johannesburg. Wonderful memories. Why, why do you think you had a reoccurring dream throughout your life uh, about your mom? I don't know. I suppose it's, I missed her so much. In fact, I woke up crying, even at the age of, I can remember the last time, 32 years of age, wake up crying for my mother because it was such a, an imprint, such a wonderful love. How much would you have liked to have had her be able to see all the success you've had? Well, you can't be greedy in life, but my dad saw me win the, all the majors. He saw me win the Grand Slam. My mother never saw me hit a golf ball. That's how sad it is. But she does up there. She's seen it. Uh, your father uh, worked in the mines. Uh, tell about what he did. Well, he worked down in a gold mine uh, and we're 10,000 feet underground and we started off at six and later went down deep, made 100 pounds a month. I remember him coming up from underground, I went to meet him. And we were sitting in this locker room, iron, concrete, furrow here with water running down. He took his big boots off and poured out the water and I said, where'd you get this water? He said, that's not water, that's perspiration. Around this time when you were growing up, your father was uh, working in the mines, your you know, mother had passed away, your sister was off at boarding school, and your brother was uh, in, you know, f fighting in the war. Um, to what extent were you alone a lot around that time growing up? I get up at five o'clock. Now I've got to wake myself up at five with an alarm clock. I've got to cook my own breakfast, you know? I've got to take a, a tram, which you call a streetcar, and I've got to drive, go into town and I walk across, right across town at the age of eight. I then get on a bus, a double-decker bus, and I drive all the way out to my school called King Edward VII School. Then I participate in debating or gymnastics. We had to exercise, and this is what I'm dying to see happen in America again, if it ever will, exercise at school every day. And then I'd participate in my respective sports, and then I get on that bus, another hour and a half, I get home, house is dark, nobody there. Imagine at eight to nine years of age, make a little bit of what we call putu, which was like grits, okay? And uh, a bit of fruit or something that, that my father made sure I had some food in the house. Uh, and occasionally he was there and he'd help me, but most of the time I'd have to do it myself. So this taught me so much. It prepared me for life. Little did I realize that I thought, how oh, this is so tough. Man, I, I mean, you know, I really felt sorry for myself in a way. It was tough. So your father uh, only borrowed money twice. Uh, <laughs> you remember what it was for? Yes, uh, when I was going overseas to England, he borrowed money uh, to buy me a set of clubs. I'll never forget, they were a set of Wilson Turf Rider clubs. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven when I saw the, I can still remember opening the box and they were brown and what they looked like. Have I ever thought I'd use a club like Callaway's today? I mean, it was incomprehensible. Uh, and then he borrowed money to help me go overseas, and he got an overdraft in the bank. Your first few years as a pro, you were, I think, making like $60 a month. You occasionally 30. had to, 30, okay. You occasionally had to hitchhike to tournaments. Uh, how well do you recall borrowing your wife's brother's pants once because you, you couldn't afford the clothes you wanted? Oh, the pants, well, I borrowed pants from a lot of people. I borrowed socks from a lot of people. You know, when I, had a, when I wore the shoes out, the little hole there, I put a bit of cardboard, put cardboard in my shoe. How well do you recall where you slept for your first British Open? 
Well, I arrive at the British Open and I go by train. Now, Tiger Woods and Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson all flying in their jets, right. which is great. I love that, that they're all doing well. I love the fact they're all making money. I wonderful that they're playing on good golf courses with great equipment and big money. Wonderful. But I arrive there and I've got 200 pounds. That's my total wealth. Two pairs of pants, two shirts, no, tie, no belt like this, and black knitted tie which holds my pants up and I wear the tie at night. I can't get a room under 80 pounds, 50 pounds, expensive. But there was available, but I didn't know where. So I went and slept on the beach where they did chariots of fire. Slept on the beach, my waterproofs, head on my pillow on my golf bag, beautiful evening. Next day I got a room right opposite. I was watching the, the Dunhill tournament the other day and I said to my wife, there's the hotel I stayed in, right opposite the green. And I went and I got a room for 10 shillings and sixpence. That's $1.50. And the next day I went down to the manager, I said, you know, there are bugs in my bed. He said, son, what do you expect for 10 shillings and six butterflies? <laughs> uh, with regards to today's players, you've obviously said before, I, I would have loved to have made the prize money that players are making today. But you also in the same note said, I'm really glad I, I didn't because it's completely destroyed the camaraderie and closeness among the players. Why do you think that is? I wouldn't say it's destroyed the camaraderie. I'm, I'm a big admirer of the young guys. I'm a big admirer of the tour. I, I never look at it with envy. I'm delighted they're making a million dollars first prize. I'm delighted they have jets. Um, we all worked, Hogan before us, Bobby Jones before us, Arnold Jack and, and the rest of us all try to promote the game so these guys could have this and they're doing their share for the next generation. So, but you guys would all travel together. We, and yeah, was... but it was a different world. Okay. And, and the world changes. Changes the price of survival. I used to stay at people's homes with my family during a tournament. Can you imagine telling Ricky Fowler or one of these young guys, you've got to, not Ricky Fowler, somebody who has three kids. You and your three kids are going to stay privately for three weeks a row on the, the tour. That wouldn't happen. Right. And there's nothing detrimental about that. It's just a different time. They have the money. They all, you can be 125th on the US tour today and be a millionaire. Nobody was a millionaire. Nobody ever won a million dollars right. when we were playing in, in a tournament. Arnold Palmer won the first tournament. It was $100,000. $100,000 first prize. It was unheard of. You can be an ordinary player today and be a very, you can be a nice golfer today and be a millionaire. You couldn't be a nice golfer in our time and win a millionaire and be a millionaire. Technology, um, you've said uh, before that, I mean, technology is essentially destroying the game. Very much so. Why do you believe that? Well, we need technology amongst the amateurs, the weekend golfers. There should be no limit with them. Let them use what they like because these are the people we're enticing to play the game of golf and rounds are going down. Now we come out with a ball that goes 50 yards further than when I played and 80 yards further than when Bobby Jones played. You put Jack Nicklaus and Bobby Watson together in their prime, same distance, same club, same ball. So now all these clubs are changing. Do you know how much money the world has spent on changing their golf courses in the last 20 years? <laughs> Hundreds of millions of right. dollars. If we took that $200 million and put it into the youth to improve golf and get more people playing and golf programs, how healthy would golf be right now? Unbelievable. Why do you have to change these beautiful golf courses that exist? They're even changing St. Andrews, the home of golf, unnecessarily so. Just cut the ball back for the pros. It costs a mere pittance. If you cut the back, you might have titlers say, well, we have the best ball in the market. We're not prepared to cut it back. Callaway say, we have the best ball. And let me tell you, there's, there's no, well, it's not allowed to be a difference of golf balls in distance on the tour because they're all regulated. They, they go through a testing machine. The one who sells the most is the one who does the best marketing and has the best money and the most money for marketing. So if they cut the ball back, it's not going to affect their sales whatsoever. And then it'll bring golf back to where it has to be, where you don't spend. Look at Augusta. Can you imagine what Augusta spent to change their golf course? It wasn't necessary. Just cut the ball back for the pros. And the pros wouldn't complain about it. They wouldn't complain. They'd want to see the golf be better for everybody concerned. To, to what extent do you think that's what's most responsible for the decline in the sport? Well, first of all, when you make a golf course 600 yards longer, as I mentioned to you today before we started our interview, any young man of your age, you'll remember what this interview one day, 
there are going to be fights about water in the United States of America. Never mind other countries that virtually have no water. America is going to have no water. So the water, when you build the golf course longer, you need way more water. You need way more fertilizer. I'm a farmer. I know what I'm talking about. Fertilizer is detrimental to the soil over a length of time. You want to use normal compost, normal manure to put in your lands, but nobody can afford to do that, so they put in compost, artificial, I mean fertilizer. Then you've got machinery. Do you know what machines cost for a golf course, the amount of money that's spent? Now they change the golf courses, undulating greens, bunkers in front of the greens, making it long. So all this amount of money. Then the members resign because the course is too tough. You've changed my beautiful golf course I had. Then what happens? They don't have the membership. Now they levy you. So it's one thing on another. It's compounded. And so many people are not playing now. It's a tragedy that there are people there. And I love the USJ. And I love the RNA. And I love the PGA. But can't they see this? And this will be on tape in years to come. Well, people will say, Gary Player was right. They will change that golf ball. They will have to, because you haven't had a LeBron James play golf yet or a Michael Jordan on the tour, and they'll hit it 450 yards. And when I mentioned 10 years ago, 15 years ago, players will be hitting the ball 400 yards, they scoffed at me. Impossible. They couldn't visualize this. Well, at our charitable day near Augusta this year, we had Jamie Sedlowski hit 10 drive all over 400 yards. You're going to find men. We never had these men come out, man. Yeah. You ever see this long driving competition? They built like Tarzan. We haven't had them come out yet. What do you think of Tiger? Well, Tiger is the most talented golfer that ever lived. Without a question, I honestly believe whether he'll reach Jack Nicklaus's majors is debatable. We, nobody knows. Time will tell. If, I'm going to give you a very interesting scenario. If Tiger Woods, once he won the US Open by 15 shots, if Tiger Woods never had a lesson from another pro in his life, I'm not condemning the pros because those pros were pretty intelligent. Hank Haney uh, and, and these other uh, teachers that he's had, they, they, they're pretty good. But Tiger was so good. He was so much better than anybody who plays today. He was so much better on the way than anybody that ever lived. He could never hit the ball like Ben Hogan. Never. Not even close. But that's not what counts. It's scoring. I'm talking about scoring, winning. Tiger Woods, if he never had another lesson, just left what he had, he would have won 20, 22, 24 majors. But he's also been unlucky. Knee operations, back operation, and a few other problems. The game needs Tiger Woods because it helps me, it helps golf manufacturers, it helps young people in countries where they're not all white, South Africa, where the majority are black, Africa, the world of people of different colors. We need, we need a black man to be a champion. Will he accomplish and become the best golfer ever? Only the Lord knows. I don't know. He's got the ability, but will he? But would I love to sit down with him for one hour and give him a piece of my knowledge? What would you and, say? No, I can't tell you what I'd say. Um, but then I think he could win majors. I wouldn't talk to him a lot about the swing. I would talk to him quite a bit about the swing because he's got flaws. There's a reason why he's not the same Tiger Woods anymore. There's a reason. And I reckon I could get those things across to him that would make a massive change in life because I've had so much experience, which will take him another 40, 50 years to, to get. So it'll take him at least another 50 years to get. And I've got this in the, in the bank. But you can't walk around volunteering, uh, volunteering to help everybody. What do you think of Rory McIlroy? He is a wonderful young man, a wonderful representative of golf, and the best golfer in the world. I can't speak highly enough about him. He's a terrific young guy. And uh, with the right thought process and training, He's got an opportunity. He's got an opportunity of going down as the best golfer that ever lived. I you really think, think so? Oh, he's got a very good chance. It's up to him now. It depends on the path that he, he goes on. And he's got a wonderful parents. He, and you need, you need wonderful management to help direct you. And too many managers are yes men with their players. They know they're not doing the right things, but they're scared to tread on their toes because they might be fired or they might become a 
uh, and be argumentative about it. If I'm a manager of a sportsman, I'm going to say, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, now listen, you stop, or you get yourself another manager. But the old thing, money talks. So, but as long as Rory has all these things and makes, the word is CTR, choose the right, which he will do. And as long as he does that, he's got a chance to be the best player the world has ever seen. He will be the next player, in my opinion, uh, to win the Grand Slam. He's only got to win the Masters, which is made for him. There's never been a golf course that's made for a man more than it is for Rory. One of your uh, Masters victories, you know, your family, which lived in South Africa, had come over to Augusta, was at uh, Augusta, at the course, but didn't actually bother going out to the course, was inside watching it on television. Yes. Because, Explain why. Well, because when you've got six children, how do you take all six children to walk around Augusta? How can you do that? So now you want to take one? Well, why are you favoring me? So we can watch it on TV and you'll all see it and we'll enjoy Dad's success. And if he wins, we'll make a point of being there. And you guys didn't have TV in South Africa? No, until yet, 1974, right? I think okay. it was. No TV. It's, yeah. it's so sad for me that uh, the South African population couldn't see me winning all these world titles. It's a, it's a shame. What I did was, can you believe this? I bought a film of the Masters, and I hired a man. Augusta, I've, been the, I've been the best ambassador, or one of the best ambassadors Augusta's ever had, if I say so myself. I got this film, and I hired a man, and I sent him around South Africa to all the golf clubs to go and show them the Masters, to show them what a great tournament it was. Bobby Jones, this great man. Clifford Roberts, this great disciplinarian, this beautiful golf course, the tradition, the discipline of this great tournament, the green jacket. And I, I paid him out of my own pocket to go and show the whole country. And you also famously won the Masters again at 44 years old. 42. 19, oh, 42. Uh, in, uh, you know, 1978 to capture your... Uh, ninth major, but a, a moment that um, really seems to have touched both you and Jack Nicholas wasn't one that you guys were actually playing in, but it was in fact uh, where you guys were captaining competing teams mm -hmm. in the President's Cup. Mm -hmm. What about that is so meaningful? Well, Jack and I had the same philosophy, uh, and it was amazing. Uh, Jack Nicholas said the statement, and he, he endorses it today. He says, the greatest moment of my golfing career was captaining the President's Cup in South Africa with Gary as an opposing captain. And uh, we had President Mandela there, President Bush Sr. there. Uh, there was a representative from China. There was uh, our President Mandela, our existing president at the time, President Mbeki and a host of other dignitaries. And there's a tie, and they go in a sudden death playoff, Ernie Els and Tiger Woods. I designed the golf course, one of the 10 toughest golf courses in the world. They par the first, this <clears throat> they get on the second hole. It's an unbelievably tough par three. Ernie Els has got about a five footer straight up the hill. Tiger's got a 20 footer from the left of the green. I designed the green, he's got no chance. That putt breaks that much. I said to our guys, we've won. Tiger knocked it right in the middle. Can you imagine thinking, even saying something about Tiger, this phenomenal competitor, yeah. and Ernie Els knocked it in. So now everybody's getting ready to go on the next hole. It's getting dark. It's Thanksgiving over here. If they play and nobody wins, they're not gonna get back for Thanksgiving. So I think about these things, and I said, Jack, we don't want to win in this. This has been this has been too exciting. This has been too good. Can't we both win? He said, yes, I love that idea. And, you know, we were criticized. Well, there's always going to be criticism. And we mustn't think of a handful as against the majority. The majority said it was so great. There were a few hand people saying, how can you do that? Well, you cannot please everybody. One story involving uh, at least a, a member of the big three, which is you, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer. You and Arnold Palmer are in uh, Zambia. With snakes? Oh, was uh, <laughs> Arnold Palmer, before I, I, I say anything, Arnold Palmer uh, is a man that has been, um, he's been a role model to a lot of pros as far as patience is concerned with people. I've seen pros sign autographs, throw the hat over their head, throw the piece of paper away, scribble their names. Arnold Palmer stood there and signed everyone. 
he was a people's man. And uh, it was wonderful to grow up and be alongside of him and along uh, Jack Nicholas to see two different personalities. Um, the one worrying about being punctual, the other one not punctual, the other one this. They both had their, like everybody else, their pros and their cons. And uh, it was wonderful growing up with two people that were marvelous ambassadors, not only for golf, but marvelous ambassadors for this phenomenal country. It was a terrific experience, a great education. And um, so we go into Zambia at that time, and they got a snake called a gaboon viper. Now, Africa have some pretty, you know, they talk about an alligator here. Well, an alligator is a sardine compared to a crocodile. <laughs> and, and your rattlesnake is Mickey Mouse compared to a black mamba or a gaboon viper. And uh, these gaboon vipers can move at great speed. And the local guy was telling us about the speed and how dangerous they are. And now we got our, we're starting to imagine things. And uh, this is in the middle of Africa, so to speak. And now we stay in a hotel and uh, we're up on the third floor and there's a ledge and Arnold and Jack, uh, and Arnold, excuse me, Arnold and Mark McCormack in the same room together and I'm next door here and I hate heights, but I, I crawl along the ledge like this and man, if I fall, I'm dead. And I crawl along the ledge like this and I put my face in my lips against the window. You know what that looks like when you do that. Sure. <laughs> and Mark McCormick's sitting there reading it. He looks up and Arnold's having a shower. Oh, no! <laughs> now I'm trying not to laugh because I'm going to fall <laughs> off. And Arnold comes running in there. <laughs> What's wrong? He's got a wedge in his hand. What's wrong? He says, look at this. And, it was, and I said, whoa, 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 it's me. Don't throw the wedge. <laughs> Jack Nicholas, uh, I read an interesting quote he uh, gave about you in, in your game. He said, um, there, were, there was nothing really exceptional, uh, exceptional about Gary's game except his desire to win. I don't think Gary was a great driver of the ball. I don't think he was a great iron player. He was a good putter, not a great putter. But when he really needed to be, he was a great driver, a great iron player, and he made the putt when he needed to make it. Well, isn't that what you want? Your thoughts, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's a great compliment because uh, you've got to do it when it's necessary. Right. You know, you could be a shadow boxer, and they, I remember them all saying when they boxed against Muhammad Ali, man, I'm going to knock him out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to dodge, and all that. When they got in the ring, they couldn't do it. And not only did he do that, he said, listen, my man, for shouting your mouth off in round four, you're going to hit the floor. In round six, there's going to be a mix. Around seven, you'll think you wished you were in heaven. And those rounds, he knocked them out. So he did it when it was important. They have an old saying, shadow boxers never win. And so you don't want to shadow box and say, I'll do this or I'll be a this or that. When it counts is when you've got to do it. That's what, that's what champions do, don't they? So it's a great compliment. Uh, the travel. Uh, you mentioned you're the most traveled person uh, ever. Um, and there's a story about you, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer. You're playing in the Canada Cup event <laughs> in, in France, oh, and the conclusion yes. gets delayed. And so that threatens the, 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 all of your abilities to potentially play in the Australian Open. Yes. Uh, take it from there. People always say, what's the most amazing one you ever had? Not the most important. Well, I said we were playing at saint nom la bratesh in France. We fogged out on the Sunday. Now we've got to play on the Monday. We were scheduled to fly. Why in those days? I don't know why. You're talking about 1965. New York, Los Angeles, Hawaii, Fiji, Sydney, Melbourne. But guys, if you go, the travel agent says, you'll get there three hours before the Australian Open starts. That means you've never seen the golf course. You've got a, what's it, a 16-hour time change and a, a flight that's over 40 hours. Jack and Arnold correctly say, I'm not going to do it. Me being crazy and a travel bug said, I'm going. So I get on the plane with Bruce Devlin, who was in the tournament, Australian. And I fly. Would you believe it? I arrived there three hours before. Not a delay. I arrived there, never seen the course. You give me a new set of clubs, a different ball. I've always said people make too much of a fuss of different balls. Uh, they can feel certain things. I don't believe all that. So uh, I get there and I've never seen the golf course. I have a shower, I have a sandwich, I hit some balls, I do some putting and I go out and I win the Australian Open by seven shots. 
I mean, that's a heck of a story. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Imagine if these American pros, Nicholas, Palmer, Trevino, Watson, Raymond Floyd, Hale Irwin, you can go down the line of all these, Billy Casper, all the, and if I leave him his name out, I'm sorry, but all these good players in my time. If they had had to travel 40 hours from South Africa, five, six times a year, okay? 40 hours, stop four times, no jets, sit up like this, children traveling on some occasions six, starting off from two, and, and have to travel and play in those countries with time changes and go to Australia and all in Japan and, and, and India and all these places and play. Imagine if I never had to have done that and I just lived in America, how many more majors I'd have won? Because I was second in seven majors. Imagine if I'd lived here, how much better I would have done. Nobody ever takes that into consideration. Well, right, because you were living in South Africa, and I was actually speaking to your son Mark about this the, the other day. If you had made the decision to up and move with your family to Florida, how, how much of an impact do you think that would have made on your statistics? Massive difference. But then I wouldn't have. I always had the desire to have the best world record, which I have. Mm -hmm. That's everywhere around the world, not the best American record. And I achieved that. But had I lived in America, I would have had to, the desire to have won the most majors. And I would have been able to be here, not fly in a couple of weeks before and fly out. I never played in many PGA championships because I had to get back home to South Africa. Explain why somebody once thought you were dead on a flight. Oh, well, we were allowed to sleep on the floor in those days. And so I couldn't sleep. And man, I'm a champion sleeper. So I'd say to the lady next to me, would you like the seat? She said, oh, I'd love it. I've got lots of room. I said, okay then my legs are gonna be underneath your legs on the floor, I'm gonna lie down. And one time I was flying to Australia and the lady called the hostess over, she said, you know, this man's dead. You better do something about it. She thought, because I never moved. I lay there and slept on that floor, which I mean, last night I slept nine and a half hours. I can sleep 10, I can sleep 11 hours or I can sleep six hours. And that's a blessing <coughs> while I've been over to continue so long and very few other people have. And let me tell you, any other pro in the world, any American pro who traveled like I did, would never be able to play at all now. He'd be completely finished. The apartheid. I think it was a 1970 PGA Correct. tournament in Dayton, Ohio. Um, to what extent did you actually legitimately fear for your life? Well, I feared for my life for two years, uh, living under the apartheid government, which I didn't invent. In fact, I broke apartheid in sport, which most people in my country don't even know about. I've never done an interview about this. I'll come back to that in a minute with Dayton. I go to my prime minister at that time, John Foster, who was a great believer in apartheid. I said, Mr. Foster, I want to break apartheid in sport. That's, I'm a sportsman, I'm not a politician. I'd like, and he said, what would you like to do? And he had these big eyebrows. And I said, I'd like to invite a black golfer from America to come and play in our PGA, which is whatever our majors. He looked at me like that, it seemed like a minute. And he said, go ahead. I said, because I, I really want to get rid of this apartheid in sport. And he said, go ahead. And Lee Elder came out, did a marvelous job. Now, presidents of America have given awards for sports uh, awareness, but here's a man who did way more than any athlete ever did. As far as the recognition is concerned, he helped break apartheid, helped people from suffering like Lee dogs. Elder. Lee Elder. For athletics, for their athletic prowess, they were given medals, but no president ever gave him a medal. It took a lot of guts for Lee Elder. He could have, let me tell you, he could have been shot. This was this apartheid feeling. Just as you had apartheid in America and Charlie Sifford and others weren't allowed to play. When I played here, they were not allowed to play on the tour. They weren't allowed to play on the tour, man, damn it. And I'll never forget playing with Charlie Sifford at, at Greensboro. I was walking up the, the, the par four before the, the par five and I saw this guy kick Charlie Sifford's ball in the rough and I called the PGA and I said, I saw this guy kick the ball in there. He was able to replace it. On the par three, there was mutterings, go home, we don't want you here. And man, I stood up for him. 
and he took his pencil and thumped it on the table. He said, how do you play with this going on? I said, Charlie, I understand. I'm from South Africa. I understand what you're going through. So now I've won nine major championships in the, in the, in the record book. But in my mind, I know I've won 10. Because I'm playing in the tournament, and I'd get to the top of my backswing, and somebody would throw a book in my back, telephone book. Then I'd get on the green. This happened in the tournament. Get on the green, they just ready to put, and they'd throw two balls between my legs. Now, when you're wanting to win a major championship, think about this. It's hard to comprehend. And then on the ninth hole, I had a putt this long, 15 inches. And these guys were standing on the edge of the green, which they were allowed to do close in those days. And they all simultaneously shouted, miss, as I brought the putter down. I missed the hole by that much. And then I got to the 10th hole, and I was playing with Jack Nicholas. and these guys charged out of the mounds onto the green, and the police were grabbing them. And the guys skidded like it and tore up the green. And, this, and then I got to the 10th hole, and they threw ice in my eyes. This is how I had to play. And I lost, I think, by one or two shots to Raymond Floyd. Young guys playing the tour don't even know about that. How would you explain uh, the, the criticism and, you know, the kind of the vitriol that was directed your way then? Well, you, you, you incline. You, the one thing I'd learned by that time, you know, don't feel sorry for yourself. But it, it is sad for a person. When I was in South Africa, I, I broke the apartheid in sport. I sponsored at least seven black golfers sponsored many of the black golfers to play overseas, got tournaments for them in those days. They weren't allowed to play in a white tournament. And I went to my business friends and we got 100,000. We sponsored three tournaments. But whatever you did was never enough. According to certain black militants in South Africa, Gary Player didn't do enough. He should have stopped playing, which I was not prepared to do. I was not prepared to stop my livelihood but I knew that I did an awful lot. And obviously you did a, a tremendous amount, but in fairness to some of the people that criticized you um, early on, your views changed over the years as well, because I think in, I think it was like your first book or one yes, of your early yes. books, you wrote, you were a believer of the apartheid system of government then and you know, the separation uh, of races. So wh why do you think you believe that Well, then, because Muhammad on? Ali in America was saying, we must live, the blacks must live in different states. And our government was saying to us, it was very similar to Germany. We were brainwashed to a great extent. And we were told by our government, this will be, now I'm a young man, I haven't had a world experience that this will be separate, but equal. So I thought, well, you know, if it's going to be separate, but equal, that's not so bad. They'll have the equal that we have. There'll be no real problem. But it wasn't so. They were pulling the wool over our eyes. So we were brainwashed. And then I also said something about the number of people playing golf. Well, there were only of those, when I was a young man at this age, I doubt if we had 10 million people in South Africa. I don't know what the number was. And no blacks played golf anyway. It was only whites anyway. So it was a complete different circumstance altogether. So it was, it was really amazing how a government, how a government could brainwash. You can understand what happened in Germany. After I grew up and traveled and saw what was happening, and you know, I came to America, there was apartheid here. So I didn't learn much here, but I learned a lot going to England. It was a very civilized society. They didn't have anything like that. So I was traveling in a lot of places that didn't have it, and I learned an awful lot. And then you sit back and you say, wow, what did Germany do? How did they brainwash a nation? It's incredible. What led to you uh, making the decision to you know, speak out against the system it's of government? It's very simple, because when you have the education mm -hmm. and you're not a young man that doesn't know anything, right. and then you leave South Africa and you're not insular, and you're not being brainwashed, you can form your own opinion. Nelson Mandela, mm -hmm. um, what most impressed you about him? Uh, first of all, his humility, but the most important thing is love. That's the thing. First time I met him, he wasn't president. I went up to his office and he requested that to meet me, which was a great honor. And uh, he said, I have asked you to come and see me because when I was in jail, you in Cape Town said that they should release me. 
and he said, which I appreciated. And he said, I am aware that you sponsored all these black golfers to go overseas, which I appreciate. And he said, I am now going to rule the country and bring everybody together. I want people who've left South Africa to come back home, which not, some did, some did. And I said, but surely you must hate the way. He sat in jail for 20 years, man. And you had a house arrest for five, whatever it was. And he said, Gary, you see this green apple here? He said, that green apple is green on the outside and ripe on the inside. It's juicy. If I have hatred and non-forgiveness in my heart, I will be the green apple on the outside, but rotten on the inside. And he says, I don't have a long time to live. I want to have pleasant thoughts. I want to be juicy and sweet. And he says, God forgives. Who am I not to forgive? If we want to go ahead, can we live with bitterness and hatred? Nothing exists permanently with any success on hatred and bitterness. And he said, my job is to bring people together. And this must never, ever happen again. But there's now talk with young militants, take the farms away from the South African farmers. Nationalize the mines, nationalize this, the banks. National well, it's never been a success. It's never been a success. Why do they want to go back and break down everything that Mandela stood for? We, the world suddenly hated us, and now the world suddenly loved us through one man. It's really, it's been a, an interesting existence for me to live through these different eras to see what's happened. Uh, Golf uh, Digest in 2000 had reached out to, you know, then uh, President Mandela uh, to see if, you know, he, he wanted to write up a little something on you. And he ended up writing up a, a pretty, uh, you know, big tribute to you. And, what an uh, honor, what an honor. It, it must have been in the end of it, uh, he, he said, and I quote, uh, Mr. Player also was voted one of the top five most influential people in our nation's history. His accomplishments as a humanitarian and statesman are equal to and may even surpass his accomplishments as an athlete. That is a legacy that will last forever. Yeah, and I tell you. What did that mean to you? Uh, oh, uh, that meant a world to me. Uh, you, you do have one of the top uh, thoroughbred stud farms in, one of the top ten. in, in South Africa. Um, how fair is it, do you think, that your passion for that now exceeds the passion for golf? And I, I ask that because a couple of people that I, I've talked to have said as much. Yeah, if you said, what do I love more now, golf or horses, uh, I would say horses. Because I'm not active on the tour. I play some tournaments, and I played with Jack Nicklaus in several tournaments this year, and we did very nicely. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I love to play golf. I, I represent companies, and I go and play with their customers. I love it, and I love to play golf, but uh, I had 62 years of it. And um, I'm not fully active anymore. But if you said, in your heyday, in golf and in horses, it's a tie. A tie? A tie. I wow. mean, it's phenomenal to, to take a stallion and take a mare and put them together and try and beat a baby that could be a world champion that's worth $30 million. I never made $30 million in my life on the golf tour. But I've got a chance to do it in the horse business. And to study the genetics and to watch these athletes, the greatest athlete in the world ever, is a thoroughbred racehorse. Your property. How much time will you take off each year to just be able to work on the farm? Well, I used to travel uh, 11 months of the year and then take a month off. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I might go back to South Africa and uh, take two weeks off. But I've been a workaholic. And even today, I'm a workaholic. But I'm also a holidayaholic. On my ranch, it's one of the most beautiful ranches in the world. I have my own nine-hole golf course. I have a game reserve. The nine-hole golf course is in the game reserve and I have thoroughbred racehorses, and there's no pollution, 124 species of birds, which I can call them. I can call birds and they actually come. I talk to them. People think I'm a nut. They don't believe it until they see it. 
and it's a life that is just incredible. Uh, and this is your uh, ranch or farm in uh, South Africa. How many acres is it, and what do you do on it besides, uh, obviously, golf, yeah. because there's so much more that you do? We have 3,400 acres plus minus, and I raise thoroughbred racehorses. Right. And then we grow alfalfa, we grow uh, hay like Timothy hay, and we have some cattle, and we have some sheep, um, we have skeet shooting, um, we have a, a variety of things that we farm with, but the main thing is thoroughbred racehorses. You see, the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man, and it's very similar to golf. It's a lifetime study, and I study genetics, I would say, over the year, at least an hour a day. And golf and horses, I know a hell of a lot about nothing. Why do you find being on the ranch therapeutic? Well, when you live in cities, you see, if I lived in New York or Shanghai or Beijing or London, I'd live for two years and I'd be dead. I couldn't live like that. It'd be like in solitary confinement for me. I've got to have fresh air where I can get on a horse and swallow the wind. And I've got to wake up in the morning and hear birds. I've got to be able to see sunsets. I've got to be able to dive in my dam and swim in natural dam water. I've got to be able to take a shovel and shovel and clean out stables. I've got to be with my dog, who if I kick him in the butt or I leave him in the rain, the next morning he loves me. Imagine finding a wife like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been lucky. Oh, although you've been very 57 lucky. Years, right. 57 years. But uh, nature is God. And you see, so many people unfortunately never experience it. So they don't know. That's so sad. The Player Foundation has uh, raised more than $50 million for underprivileged uh, kids around the world on six continents. What about that are you most proud of? First of all, you go to South Africa where we go to places where kids don't have parents and they're not well and they're struggling. And you go in there and you just change their lives. And South Africa, where, is I, where I live, uh, and with the help of President Mandela, we raised almost plus minus 20 million for young black children. And it was a thrill to work with him. And every time I was around Nelson Mandela, I cried because I couldn't believe that a man could have this amount of love in his heart. And he was so kind to me, telling me, he always said to me, Gary, you're my number one ambassador, which was really something phenomenal coming from him. Uh, and then you see these children, the joy on their faces when they've got nothing. And then you go to China, and now we start and we raise, and we were giving, we were giving the, the Chinese people 12 million uh, RMB a year uh, over the years, and they, the government would, would have, didn't know what golf was, really, and then all of a sudden they'd have a government official there. Wow, can you do this through golf? And Coca-Cola sponsored the whole thing, and we raised all this money in China for the last X amount of years, almost 100 million RMB. I don't know what the total is, but it's enormous. And then we came to America and we raised a lot of money for people in this country. Then we went to Europe and we raised, we got a, a sponsor called Berenberg Bank out of Germany. They put on the biggest one-day pro-am ever in the history of golf this year. We had all the good players, the top guys, not everyone. And we made a lot of money, and they're going to make it bigger. And then in South Africa, we have it. And uh, so we have it in four quadrants of the world, and wherever we have it, that money is used in that particular country to benefit recipients in that country. And my goodness me, I can go to my grave knowing the joy that I've changed the lives of thousands of people. And God willing, if I live my great dream, with the son of my, help of my son, who's so capable and our great staff, is to raise $100 million before I die. And we will do that. And it, it is a great, great feeling to do that, to change people's lives. How do you view luck? I have a great saying with luck. Luck is the residue of design. <laughs> the harder I work, this is a saying that I came up with. And that, of course, it might have been done many, 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 many years ago. But I, I came up with that. I automatically did it. 
And down in Texas, Dallas, Texas, I hold three bunker shots in a row. And this big Texan dressed very smartly, which I loved with his cowboy hat. I love the way Texas cowboys dress. And he stood there. And he, he said, oh, and I hold the first one. He said, wow. He says, uh, I'll give you $100 if you can do it again. I said, well, the odds of that are remote. I hold it. He spat out that red man, he said. That's the luckiest damn thing I've seen in my life. And I said, well, I just spontaneously said, well, the harder I work, the luckier I'm going to get. And that's how I started it, really. Luck plays a small part, but hard work, hard work prevails. What made America such a great country? People got off a boat from Europe with nothing. Okay? I spoke to a man the other day. I was in Philadelphia to see my daughter. He came from Ukraine. He said, I arrived in this country, I had nothing. He says, I couldn't get a job. He says, eventually I found a job. I was getting $25, I don't know, every two days or something. He said, I was able to buy food and get a start. And he says, today I've built up this business and I'm so thankful for this country. He says, I can't believe you wanted to give everybody things for nothing. And you've got to take care of the poor. But I don't think you've got to generalize with people, give them free medicine. And if what? I don't want free medicine. I made a lot of money. I should pay for it. Now, somebody at a certain wage uh, limit, let's say whether it's 70,000, 50,000, or 80,000, a government's got to decide on that where they really need help. Those people should be given free medicine. But everybody in the country? No. That's my philosophy. Maybe I'm talking nonsense. It's my, I'm entitled to my opinion. I don't want free, I don't think you should be, all be given free medicine. You've got to have a proper balance. Balance in life is, is very important. Then you think the balance is I think it, it's right a complete imbalance. And this cab driver, this driver of a limousine who came from Ukraine said, how can you give these people that don't really need it, that could go out and work, that are able to work, that made America this great country, how can you give them all these things for nothing? But if you fought for a war in this country, if you contributed to this country, you should be taken care of. I think a soldier that comes back, my opinion, comes back from a war, one leg off, fought for this great country, the day he rides back, they should be given $100,000 and they should be given a free small home. To, to, because without them, freedom is gone. You see, I'm a great believer, you know, when people say, well, what do you do now in America to get it back to where it was? And I said, well, one significant thing would be to have one year's army service. You get away from your little mommy and daddy and from lying and having breakfast in bed and sitting with a computer every day and not greeting people and not standing up when they come in the room and, and just withering away the way you are, low education, where you'd be forced to have discipline, which makes your country. Everybody needs discipline. You can't have any. You think all these businesses are success? You think this business is a success without discipline? Somebody comes to work late every day, kick their ass out of here. Right. You know, but a lot of people don't think that matters anymore. Never mind that. You can have pedophiles continuing along the road. Just try and be a pedophile in Singapore or Malaysia or take drugs in Malaysia or Singapore. People call them crazy, but they're right. There are no drugs in Singapore. There are no guns. And I know what a great country this is. But everywhere I go, people say, the Americans, they're barbaric. That's, that you hear that everywhere you go. And it's so sad for me to hear that. You go to Singapore, I want to be prepared. If you're a drug dealer and you, spend, uh, you, you spread drugs around with young people, you are dead in two weeks' time. They give you a court case, but if you're guilty, you're dead in two weeks' time. So nobody handles drugs. Nobody has a gun. What still drives you today? My, my, the drive, I, th I think at the back of my mind now that the thing that drives me most, I, uh, there's many things I'd like to have breed a real champion racehorse now. I had one, but I'd like to breed an, another real champion. <clears throat> and secondly, I'd like to raise a lot of money for underprivileged children. That really, because having been poor, I, I find myself going back in memory and I'm saying, not if I'm a champion one day, I didn't know I want to be a golfer. When I'm a champion one day, I'm going to help poor people because I understood what it was like and I needed help. So it was a good experience to have. Uh, and I just love people. You know, I'm playing golf yesterday with a, a, com a SAP company group, but I see people on the other side of the fairway. How are you? And I get in my car and I drive her. How are you? 
And those guys are going to tell 10 people. Gary came and saw me and said hello to me. And it's so easy. So I love giving love because I have a, I have a desire for love in my heart. And so I love giving it and I love receiving it. And 20 grandchildren, 22 grandchildren, man, do I get love. Love from my wife and my friends. And I'll be in an airport in, in, in America. They'll come up to me. How are you, Gary? Gee, I've enjoyed watching you play. You know, my father's still alive and he used to watch play. I said, get him on the phone. And I phoned him. Yesterday I did it. 90-year-old man. Gary, man, I used to love watching you play. How are you? Fine, thank you. I said, you're a bionic son of a gun. I believe you chipped in on the last hole against your son the other day. What do you expect? Aren't I supposed to do that? I said, how long are you going to live? He says, who knows, 100 or more. I said, he says, be careful I don't come to your funeral. <laughs> Great. I do that a lot of times. I just love people. And it's, it's a great thing. It's a great thing to love people. So I have many things uh, to run a good business, to represent companies, uh, many, spend good times with my grandchildren. I, I'm, I have a host of things. I have a great desire for education, even at my age. I want to improve my vocabulary. I want to learn to spell better, even at this age. I, you know, I'm, I want to have a good memory. I don't carry a cell phone. I don't have an iPad. My wife has the iPad. She has a cell phone. People around me in my office who travel with me have all that. I don't have it. I use theirs. And if I'm stuck without them there, some guy comes up to me in the airport and says, Gary, how are you, my buddy? Will you sign this? I said, yes. Let me use your cell phone. Pleasure. Great swap. <laughs> really a pleasure. Okay. Thank you for doing enjoyed this. Enjoyed it, Graham. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. That'll do it for this week. Make sure to check out video clips of the interview, including a tour of players' headquarters and a lesson on the golf course at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. If you enjoyed listening, please drop us a rating and review and catch additional content on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.